Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, with Elias Randall. Second week of January here. How are we doing, Elias? I'm doing good. Um, really good. We're getting the year started. So I know we talked a little bit about it last week, but uh, I think we've both been watching the new Bernie Madoff documentary on Netflix, and I just had a couple thoughts about that. So I've been through at least enough of it to see um, there's a guy who goes through all of the returns, looks at the trades, figures out their win rate on trades and all that. Have you seen that yet? Yeah. Okay. In fact, I thought my most kind of glaring moment of that is the letter that the guy wrote to the SEC. Yes, that 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 was interesting, and we can get into that too. But one thing I wanted to point out was everyone involved in this was somehow in the financial services business. Everyone knows perfect market timing is impossible, but Bernie Madoff's trades were basically executing perfect market timing. His win rate was like 96% of the time on trades. If you look at the returns, they go up and to the right at a 45 degree angle. How much greed? I mean, I know he was the main driver of this and really taking advantage of people, but how much other greed was involved to just keep perpetuating this lie? Because this finance, these hedge fund managers, the uh, the investors over in Europe that were telling their clients, put some money with Bernie Madoff, they know better. Well, they should know better. It's, you know, it's too good to be true, right? What's really interesting about it was the... Uh and I don't know what firm this was, but one of his competitors is one of the ones who started researching this because his boss was like, you have to figure out how Madoff is doing this. And he hired that investigator reporter, which kind of broke the news on this. Mm -hmm. And he went around and you know, every person he talked to is like, well, they only take money from us. Well, after the seventh person said that Madoff only takes money from them, he kind of figured out what was going on. And yeah. And who's the gentleman? And you, you might know their names. I'm not great at like watching a movie and remembering like the characters in it. Who is the guy who like had tons of money allocated to banks and the wealthiest families in Europe? What was that guy's name? I don't. I don't. You know recall. who I'm talking about? Yes, and, I don't and, recall his name. But he they refer to him as an investor. So to me, it was. He's like a financial advisor he's, in, in yeah. Europe, and he's helping the richest families there connect them to mutual funds. And fun, they asked or, uh, him a hedge question funds and, things. and said, what happens if Madoff goes down? He said, and, I'm a dead man. Yeah. So he knew the level of risk he was taking for people in this very, very, very concentrated investment position, which, you know, just goes to show like some level of diversification makes sense. Although those people thought they were diversified. They thought they were diversified because they are getting a statement with their trades and their holdings every single month, I'm assuming, or every quarter. So on paper, they look diversified. I guess I just, yeah, I, th I think uh, for me, I was thinking, here's a good takeaway for just regular investors is the, the, making decisions, like a lot of people had to make decisions driven by greed to go along with that. I mean, I feel like at some level, okay, if you if you invested money somewhere and you thought the returns were too good to be true, like what would you rather do? Just cover your eyes and hope it's not a lie? Or would you want to figure out how is this even possible? 
Well, yeah, that's what they're. That's what this one firm was trying to do is figure out how it was possible. Right. But at well, the end one of the firm, day, one firm, but billions and billions of dollars all over the world were still coming in. Well, yeah, because th- this firm was getting so much pressure. In fact, they created a product that they thought was similar to how Madoff was doing it. But they said, here's the deal. We could get you these returns. But in any month, any trade, we could lose 50%. And every single person that they went to, large institution, they said, no, no, we're going to stick with Bernie. He doesn't lose money. It's safe. I mean, you think about that. They're and. They're not going to unsophisticated investor who retired from a job that they worked at for 30 years and doesn't understand the markets. We're talking about banks, hedge funds, institutional investors. He had them all buffaloed as to what was going on. Right, And and I feel like there's a level of those people should know better. They should know better than you can't execute perfect trades. I mean, it just goes back to market timing doesn't exist. If you think you can do it, you can't. You said it on our radio show last night. It was the perfect quote. The best market timer of all time was Bernie Madoff. But yeah. he was create he he was doing the books after the day closed. Yeah, they, were they working had all crew. night long to create the trades that could have happened, but didn't really ever happen. So there you go. That's if you have a crew of people that work overnight that can make false trades, then you can represent perfect market timing. I guess. Well, with that said, let's get into the actual outline that we have today. And I was, uh, you know, we get information from companies and they send us over charts all the time. And I I don't read a lot of them, but this one kind of caught my eye and was titled the 30 reasons not to invest in the last 30 years. And it basically goes back to January 4th, 1993, gives us the value of the Dow Jones Industrial, S&P 500 and NASDAQ. In 1993, the Dow Jones was 3,300 points. The S&P was 435. And as we go through this chart, we realize that every single year for the last 30 years, there's been an event or a drawdown in the stock market that could potentially give you pause as to why you shouldn't invest. And we talk a lot about having a media filter and tuning out the noise, and this is why. We can go back to to some of these, but you brought up one on the, the radio last night, Y2K. In 1999, we were concerned about Y2K and the stock market had a 12% drawdown during that year because we weren't sure what was going to happen. Was everything going to roll back to 1900? Yeah, and people, this is, so I guess in 1999, I was 11 years old, so my memory of it is people thought that when the date changes on all these computers, the computers won't be able to handle going back to 1900, like causes massive glitch and and all the systems. And I, I just think that's really ironic when you think about technology now. And, you know, I've heard there are, there are conspiracies and things, but nowadays you hear people talk about, well, we're worried about artificial intelligence taking over aspects of our life or like even like self-driving cars. So we've gone from we think computers can't handle changing the year if it ends up popping up 1900 to robots are going to be driving our vehicles. You know, it's funny you said robots and I'm not trying to get off the outline, but um, I had a conversation with an individual who I'd considered knowledgeable on. Uh, he's in the in the um, logistical transportation industry, and he's knowledgeable on, you know, EV cars and self and self autonomous cars and things of that nature. I just don't think we're gonna have self driving cars, 
and I'm going to tell you why. I was driving home the other night. I was down with my friend Brad in southern Iowa, and it started to snow. There were zero lines on the road because the snow covered them up. If we had an autonomous car, how do you drive? How does it know where to go? And, and I had this discussion with him, and he he's in the trucking industry, transportation. And he said, oh, no, it's going to happen. I said, well, yeah, it can maybe happen like Arizona and these southern belt states where they don't get that kind of weather. But I've been on the road before when there's rain on it and it's hard to see the lines. And I said to him, I said, I don't think the, the autonomous vehicle is going to happen until we actually like number one, GPS technology probably has to get even better. And then we have to like GPS every single road, this entire U S to make that an impactful way to drive a car. Yeah. There, yeah. Right. There'd have to be some sort of system so yeah. the vehicle can locate itself and know where to go without the visually, lines on the road. yeah, without using the paint to like identify where it is. Yeah, I think I think people think that you know. One time he told me we're five years away, and I had lunch with him yesterday. I said, "No, we're not five years away. We're 20. And we started talking about other things like decentralized finance and just things of the future, because he thinks you know decentralized finance and you know eliminating the middleman of banks that's coming sooner rather than later. I'm like, we're 20 years away, minimum. From it becoming mainstream because everybody that's 45 years old and older, we still want to have a relationship with the banker. And I gave him this scenario. I, I, I had, um, I, I bought a piece of real estate and, uh, I make my payment electronically online with my bank. Well, I made a payment and it just reflected principal only when I made the payment, it didn't reflect principal and interest. It just was principal. So I, called my private banker and said, Hey, what's going on? Oh, I don't know. Let me check into it. 10 minutes later, I had a DocuSign to fix it and got it up, set up on automatic payments. And I started thinking, well, if I was just using an online service, how much time would it have taken me to figure that out? Two hours? It would have been frustrating. I know that. It would have been frustrating. It would not have been a productive two We're hours. We're not even close to that becoming mainstream. And I think I was, was I talking to you about this on the phone? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it the other day. So I, I'm, when I was driving back from this meeting, actually. Yeah. I'm probably more, more anti decentralized finance and um, cutting out middlemen. I just don't see, I don't see how that's ever going to be how people do business. Most people don't care about the middleman. Cause it, right. And if you think of even our, our business is a great example. You think about all of the, um, the platforms that are available, like through robo advising, you can go answer some questions. It's going to give you what it says is the good portfolio for you. And then you're going to invest into it. And People ultimately, I've talked to a lot of people that like start investing that way, but they don't like it because there's no, there's no one there to bring any insight into what they're doing or to talk about the markets or help them feel like, okay, this person makes me feel confident in this. And so you think about a bank, like who, when are people really going to be able to underwrite their own mortgage and handle all the stuff that the bank does for them? They're not going to want to. The reason I think it's 20 years down the road before it's really, really mainstream. I'm not saying we're not going to have some of it, but where it's you know adopted by the largest percentage of the population is 20 plus years. Because think about how somebody who's in their 40s engages versus someone in their 20s. 
that person in their twenties is significantly more comfortable utilizing online technology and resources than even myself. You know, that person who's 25, they grew up with Robinhood doing it myself. I've done this. I'm, I'm using SoFi and all these other companies that are all, you know, direct to consumer technology wow. companies where I'm just not comfortable with that. And the other thing is, I don't know, maybe it's just human nature that humans want to be able to blame somebody. And if you do it all yourself, the only person you can blame is yourself. And, I, and who wants to work through a two-hour problem that could take 15 minutes if you had a middleman? The middleman really is the convenience fee. That's what the middleman is. It's the convenience well, and fee. It, I'm happy to pay my private banker, whoever I've got, through my deposits or the loans I do with that bank. I'll pay a little bit more. In fact, when I take out, you know, I bought, bought some real estate. I didn't go shopping for rates. I went to the place that was going to take care of me. And the thought that the lowest rate and the cheapest product is always the best, it, it might be okay, but what you're signing up for when you do something like that, you wanna work direct with an internet company. You're signing up for no service. And we've heard my no service story. I'll, I'll tell you the no service story again. This is probably seven years ago, my dad buying a car and he's very, very frugal. Like he's shopping it. So we went to a local dealership in Cedar Rapids found the car he wanted, got him to come down on their price. Okay. Well, then he got online, found the same car in Dubuque. And it was an internet only special. So he went back into the car dealership where he negotiated the original car purchase here in town and said, well, I can get this price and, you know, put the heat on him to match it. And eventually they matched the price. So my dad felt really good. Like, man, got this car. We were driving up fishing to Guttenberg one day and it was, man, this, this place won't call me back. I go, well, tell me what happened. He goes, well, you know, I bought this car from, they just won't call me back. I said, but tell me about like the purchase of the car. Well, I, you know, got him down the price for an internet special. I'm like, well, dad, they fired you. You signed up for no service because you went at the lowest price. He goes, well, they sold to me. Like, yeah, but they don't have to service you. So it gets better. They go buy a new camper the next year. My dad didn't negotiate the price. He just went to the place he wanted to buy it, negotiate with one place, paid for it. He got invited to their Christmas party and all these different events. I'm like, yeah, you signed up for service. You didn't go for the lowest price. Lowest price usually is going to mean no service. If you think about a robo-advisor, guess what that is? Self-service. And here's what's unique about robo-advisors. They were all the craze like five years ago. I remember being at a conference in Chicago I, probably 2016-ish, and everybody was high on robo-advisors. What's happened to most robo-advisors today? Kind of, they're non-existent. They're, they're third-party asset managers now where registered investment advisors are utilizing their platform because they like their technology. So now they're being used by financial advisors just like us again, or they've been purchased by large broker-dealers as their small account solutions. And when they originally purchased by broker dealers, the client had to do all the self-service themselves and open the account. Well, guess what they can do now with our broker dealer? They can have the robo-advisor, but the advisor is still helping them open the account because the account opening process for an individual is so cumbersome, it's very difficult for them to get it right. 
So that those are all the reasons that, and even I understand your point about, well, young people, they're more comfortable, but, uh, and if there's any young investors listening, which I'm sure there are just because you can do some things for yourself, doesn't mean you should try to take on every task for yourself. And like, even as, okay, so let's assume decentralized finance evolves to the point where oh, now you can do your own loan and do all this stuff. Don't be surprised if you do it wrong because you're paying for convenience. You're also paying for expertise and that it's done correctly the first time. And guess what happens if it's done wrong? Two things. It's your fault and you have to figure out how to fix it. Yeah, good luck fixing it. And it's going to take you way more time and your time is worth more money than whatever the middleman costs. I just, you know, some of this thing all looks good on paper. But in practical reality with how our society still works, it becomes very difficult for it to make a lot of sense. I don't even know if it looks good on paper, to be honest with you. I don't <laughs> like any of those ideas. I don't, I guess it might just be I'm biased because of our business, but I don't, I don't care for any self-service model business. Like I don't, I personally don't want, like, I don't want to do any of that. We'll I want to do the things I'm good at and spend time doing things I enjoy. Okay, here's one thing I've adopted. I have adopted self-checkout at the grocery store, but it's just because it's faster. It's a better use of my time. Yeah, it took me a while to learn how to do it, but I do it now. I do self-service because I get to bag the groceries how I actually want to bag them. That's another benefit. You know, when I get my apples, I tie the top. So when I put them in the back seat, they don't roll everywhere in the car. And I put all like, that's why I do self-service and it's quite relaxing. The only thing about self-service, it's not self-service because inevitably one or two times while you're there, someone's got to come help you. And if yeah, that person didn't times. come help you with their little car to unlock the system, how long would it take you to figure it out? So it's still not self-service, but that that's actually a good analogy. I, I like that analogy a lot. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm. That's been ever, so with crypto, decentralized finance, all that stuff, I think the number one thing I disagree with the most is that the whole thought that, well, it's going to eliminate the middlemen of finance, insurance, no. banking. I disagree. And here's another thing I disagree with. So like the big investment banks in the country, like, do you really think the clients that they work with, like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, all these huge investment banks, you really think their clients want to do stuff for themselves? No. I, I so there's there's ultimately, there's going to be a small market for it of people that think they're saving money, but that's going to be it. You, you summed it up when I was on the, I remember our conversation. I was coming down the interstate when we were talking about this and you summed up best. You said the people that want this are the people with no money. Right. Cause they think they're getting a deal somehow or they're saving or someone's not making commission on me or something go, like that. Go interview the most successful person that you know financially and ask them who's involved in their financial life. Multiple people. It's not them. They're not doing it themselves. They've got a CPA. Yep. They have a financial advisor. They have a banker. They might have a mortgage lender. They've got an attorney. And most of this stuff, they're literally delegating to them. And you know why they're doing it? Because their capacity is better spent on their core competency, which is probably their business or their craft that they're doing, they don't have time to do that part of it. I'm a financial advisor. I would never do my own banking. 
And I you, delegated you probably could. If you, if you wanted to wrap your mind around that and do it do all it. for yourself, you could do it for the, yourself. The problem is I don't want to go figure it out. I'd just rather utilize the third party and let me do what I'm really good at, which is helping clients build financial plans, manage portfolios. Every you know, brain cell that I use on something else is just capacity that I'm actually wasting. Elias, one thing that we, we've been getting questions about, and I think people, based on news, media, that's happening in the financial world, people are concerned about the economy in 2023. And I think part of it's this buildup that we have had talk of a recession for, I would say, the better part of nine months. That, hey, we're going to have a recession. It's coming. And what we're starting to see are some of the cracks. And what I mean by that is we're hearing of layoffs at multiple different places are they widespread yet? No, but it always kind of starts at the top and trickles down. And one of the questions we've got is, you know, how do I balance what I'm saving for retirement versus my emergency fund? And I think the emergency fund came forward for a lot of people during COVID because if they lost their job or they were in the service industry where they said, hey, don't come to work for six weeks or two months or whatever it was, those people were nervous. And fortunately, there were programs put in place during you know, COVID in 2020 to make sure that people still had paychecks and some level of employment. The concern for people should be going forward that the next recession or big economic thing that we have happen, there may not be checks. So how do I prepare for that? And how do I balance retirement savings and an emergency fund? Here's what I think is kind of, it's a little ironic and funny about this topic. So, because there's a couple podcasts that I listen to weekly, consistently, and I the emergency fund topic, it's getting brought up on a lot of shows. I think we've had a question on our radio show recently. I've talked to some new prospects recently and been asked about emergency funds. And in 2021, who wanted to hear about emergency funds? No, and all the questions were about what stocks should I be buying? Should I keep going with technology and growth? Or should I rotate in other companies? And to me, it's just kind of funny how when things, you know, things get difficult and it's almost like everyone's kind of realizing sometimes just getting understanding the basics and executing those is a really good starting place. Now, so my opinion on emergency fund, it can obviously be different for each person. I think a good rule of thumb is three to six months of expenses or income, however you want to quantify that. But I think it can also, I think you could put some more thought into it too and make sure it, like you have enough for your deductible, for your health insurance, um, all of your insurances, be able to replace income. And I think some of it you should consider your career as well. I think there are certain jobs that like a good example, if you're an engineer and you get laid off and like you live in our area, well, there's a lot of companies that hire engineers. So you're probably not going to have to relocate. But if you have like a specialized job that there's not very many of those in your market, I think you could make a good argument that your emergency fund needs to be bigger because you may have to move somewhere if you lose your job. So those are also considerations. This is one of the questions I always get is, is it expenses or is it income? And I'm going to tell you what it is. I, I think it's expenses, yeah. but for some people it's income. And you know why it's income for some people? 
probably eat. Well, I no, it's because they spend everything they make. So you, you think about it. Yeah. So if you know if you're on a zero base budget, you might look at it and say, "Well, my budget is X." Well, what's in your budget? Is that all truly expenses or is there discretionary in there? Is there, hey, I have $400 a month to go out to eat and I have $800 a month into a Roth IRA for me and my spouse. What is in it? So it's expenses unless all of your expenses are your entire paycheck. So Elias, one of the things I think people want to be conscious of is, you know, get three to six months in there. One, one thing though to think about is a lot of people who've had a fully funded emergency account they might not be paying attention to how much their cost of living's actually increased due to inflation in the last two or three years. So people who've you know been really responsive, we've had what you consider a fully funded emergency account the last three years, let's say that fully funded emergency account is $30,000. Well, it might be 35 today. That That's where you might wanna go revisit it. Make sure we yeah. max that out, get it to where it needs to be, and then you know obviously move on to your company retirement plans where you're getting a match, getting all the money you're legally entitled to get from your employer. And that's how I try to balance it. So are you saying adjust your emergency fund for inflation? I stole it from Jonas. I think that's a great idea. I think if you're adjusting your emergency fund with inflation, that's a prudent thing to do for your financial situation. There is nobody thinking, oh, I need to adjust my emergency fund because inflation's been 8% the last year. And five the year before, that's 13. So if you had 30 grand, you should have 34. That's a very valid argument. I think that's right. Because once you get there, that's your baseline. And one so of the you should I, do an inflation adjustment probably annually, really. And one of the things I, I, I like to talk to people about who are doing this and trying to balance the retirement savings and emergency fund. If you get to a level, let's say three months is your comfort level in your emergency fund. Like you're good getting to that point. You could get to three months of your emergency fund and then start working on some of the company retirement, meaning you could be saved. Let's say you have a thousand dollars a month you can save. You could do 700 into retirement and 300 systematic into your emergency fund and build that emergency fund to six months while getting your retirement going too. It doesn't have to be all or none, I guess is what I'm saying. Like I still put money into my emergency fund on a systematic basis. Like every month I have money that just goes into that area. Actually, I do it weekly. Um, Every week I have money that goes into that account. If it gets too much money in the account, guess what I can do? You can sweep it to your investment account or I've just had it it. set up on a weekly systematic um, plan for so long. There's no reason to quit. I'm used to the money coming out. Yeah, I get over my threshold, then I sweep it or use something else with it. Um, so I think that's just good going into what many are considering 23 could be a challenging year. We could see more layoffs. We see that's happening. You know, just go revisit how to, you know, make sure you have the emergency fund. Don't forget about about your retirement accounts. Um, you know, I hope 2023 is a much smoother year for people than 2022. With that said, I want to thank everybody for listening to the show. Elias, do you have any kind of closing remarks? Yeah, I think for I think a good expectation is um, for 2023 as we head into the year. Just I, I don't think we should expect a nice rosy year. Expects volatility. It might be another difficult year, but ultimately, um, people that execute good investor behavior they're they're going to win in the long run. So. 
you know, don't don't let one bear market knock you out of the game. I guess that's one of my messages for today. With that said, I want to thank everybody for listening. If you want more information, you go to btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.